0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the Book of Acts. and here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to conclude their discussion on Acts chapter 7 and the martyrdom of Stephen. At the beginning of this episode, Peter Lightheart is going to talk about our giving campaign. And if you would like to become a partner with us, I have put a link in the show notes to our give page at Theopolis where you can make a donation and support our work. We are right now putting out weekly Psalm chant videos, which is tied to our upcoming Psalter project that we'll be releasing. And here is a snippet of a recent chant video from Psalm chapter 12.
1: Help your way. For the godly person is no more. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of Adam. Emptiness they speak to one another. Flattering lips with double heart they speak. May Yahweh cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that speaks great things. That say, with our tongue we will prevail. We own our lips, who is our master. Because of the oppression of the weak, because of the groaning of the needy, I will arise, says Yahweh. I will protect him from the one who maligns him.
0: If you'd like to hear more chants like this, please head over to our YouTube page and be on the lookout for our upcoming Psalter project. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Acts
2: chapter 7. Welcome to The Theopus Podcast, I'm Peter Lighthart, and we're here today with Alistair Roberts and James B John and Jeff Myers. Brian Moats is recording and uh, he will edit this podcast. We appreciate your listening and uh, wanted to say again a word about our uh, fundraising campaign for this spring, uh, which we're beginning uh, early in the month of July. Uh, we've been spending a lot of our time during the shutdown trying to put together a first edition of a Theopolis Salter and Liturgy. Uh, the emphasis on first edition is not a complete Psalter. There's a selection of about a, about 40 Psalms, uh, but it's the beginning of what we hope will be uh, a longer-term Psalter project that will eventually include all 150 Psalms uh, with settings, uh, with uh, Jim Jordan's translations. It might seem like a, uh, something of a, a passive response to the confusions and turmoil of the past few months, Uh, while the world was in the midst of a pandemic and then uh, in the midst of uh, global demonstrations over uh, racism and police abuses uh, and other sorts of things happening, statues being pulled down and dumped into rivers and things like that. And here we are at Theopolis spending our time putting together a Psalter. And uh, that might seem like a retreat from the action. I think that's Exactly the opposite is the case. What uh, we believe at Theopolis, what changes the world is the spirit and work of God, and we believe we participate in that above all in gathering to worship. We are transformed by our worship as God speaks to us, dismantles us by His word, and then renews us by His word and spirit, makes us new people. Uh, We're remade as a body as we come together at the Lord's table, and we do affect the way the world goes, by our prayers, by our common prayers, and by our common sacrifices of praise. When we offer the words of God to God, when our song ascends to God as a sweet-sounding savor to Him, then the Lord responds to that, and the Lord brings a judgment, and the Lord sorts through and sorts out what's evil and what's good, and uh, He brings His kingdom. That's reality. That's how, the, that's how Uh, the world has changed as we bring our praises to God, and particularly as we bring psalms, because the psalms are unlike any other Christian hymnody or song. The psalms are full of pleas to God to do justice. The psalms are full of pleas for God to defend the weak and the helpless. The psalms are full of requests to God to suppress the murmuring and the, the turmoil of the nations. As everyone knows, there are some very tough passages in many of the psalms, imprecatory psalms, but those are all part of the same vision, the same uh, vision of worship, that in worship we're bringing uh, the needs of the world before God. We're singing the uh, singing of the injustices. We're singing laments before God for the the condition of the world, and we're calling on him to respond. And we're putting our hope in him. And those hard words that we sing – uh, are uh, for the sake of justice. We want God to do justice and to put down the wicked and break the teeth of the, those who are preying on his people, especially. So we don't see this as in any way a retreat from the challenges of, the, uh, of our times. It's rather a central part of our response to the challenges of our times, to learn to sing these Psalms and to bring them to the Lord in prayer. It's part of the way we participate in God's the coming of God's kingdom. So I say all that to again ask you to consider supporting Theopolis and doing that you're supporting our work on the Psalter. You're support- supporting our work in uh, doing these podcasts, putting out our videos, putting up essays on our website. You're helping us to have courses regionally and and, and intensive courses here in Birmingham. All of that is uh, completely donation based. So uh, we ask if you're if you're able and you haven't uh, become a donor to Theopolis uh, please do that and and particularly contribute to this Psalter project that we're working on and we hope to, uh, to complete over the next few years. We are in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Acts. And uh, in the last episode, we began looking at Acts 7. It's a very long passage. It's Stephen's speech in his trial. Uh, as we pointed out last week, it begins, at least in context, uh, as a speech of defense. Against the false accusations of those uh, who bring him before the sanhedrin, it turns into an, an indictment. He, he turns into a, a prosecutor in the course of the, in the course of the speech. Now one of the things we highlighted several times in the last episode is the Christological dimensions, the Christological way that he's telling the story. He sees these different op- episodes in the Old Testament as he shapes the way he tells these stories in order to encourage us to seek analogies with the life and work of Jesus. Uh, we see that in the way that he tells the story of Joseph, for example, uh, and we're going to see it uh, even more clearly, I think, when we see what he says about the the work of Moses and the life of Moses. But I think the other dimension to it, the other layer of it, is to see that Stephen himself is has been remade uh, to become a living type of Christ. He's a by the Spirit. He's preaching and arguing with uh, opponents like Jesus did. He's put on trial as Jesus was. He speaks uh, in his defense, and then he dies like Jesus with the words of Jesus on his lips. So it's not simply that the way he tells the Old Testament story is pointing to Jesus, but the way that he's telling the story is pointing to Jesus and all those disciples of Jesus who by the spirit of Jesus have been conformed to the life of Jesus. And Stephen himself was one of the leading examples to this point in in Acts, so again, that's another. That's a, a way of pointing out again that Acts seven is not just a review of distant history. It's a it's a, a review of history that's uh, specifically relevant to the situation that Stephen is in, and Stephen kind of tells the story of Israel and writes his own trial and his own afflictions into mm-hmm. the story of Israel.
3: Just a general comment, uh, piggybacking on what you said, Peter. It is striking um, and instructive for us, I think, that Stephen draws out how bad, how badly the uh, people of God have behaved in the past, Um, and yet the the leaders of the people of God at the time of Stephen are blind to it. Uh, I. I suppose reading this, that they have so emphasized um, the promise and all the good things that God has done for them and the law and that they don't even see that so much of the story of Israel, when when it's told by Stephen, when it's told accurately and honestly, is about sin and rebellion and the failure to listen to the messengers that God sends them. Um, that surely is a message also for the church as well, because we can do this too. We can highlight all the high points of church history. You know, this happens when you get this um, uh, hagiography of various uh, saints, whether they're Reformation saints or early, early church saints, and we could just we we paper over all of the real problems, all of the real sin, all of their all of their. Uh, uh, their errors, and it seems to me like uh, Acts seven is a good lesson for all of us to be just a little more self-conscious about our own participation in injustice and in sinfulness
2: as Christian people. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jeff. And I think the the, the other side of that is that uh, the, the the hagiographic telling of church history is uh, sets us up for a narrative of decline. You know, in the past everything was really everyone was really super faithful and now things are now things are a mess and there's not a faithful person anywhere I don't want to minimize the challenges that the church has right now but there's a there's a an optical illusion in that that uh, uh, we need to we need to recognize the ongoing sins of the of the church's history not just uh, those of our our present day
4: and the possibility of a non hagiographic telling of the history, seems to be a strong understanding of the Lord's forgiveness and deliverance of his people. And when that element tends to get marginalized or forgotten, at that point, the hagiographic impulse becomes more pronounced.
2: I'm going to take volunteers to see which one of you wants to write a non-hagiographic church history uh, <laughs> on the expectation that you're going to end like Stephen.
3: <laughs> uh, that, But, but what Alster said is correct, too, because... Stephen's speech, you know, goes over all of these problems, these errors in the past, these failures on the part of the people to listen to her messengers. And it, and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And you, you would expect after hearing all this, that when Stephen at the end says, you know, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have betrayed and murdered. Um, and you you would expect them to have some honest self-reflection here and think, hmm. Um, and then also, then also God has continually come back to those same people and graciously and forgiven them and, uh, and manifested himself to them and delivered them from their enemies even though they con- they over and over again uh, rejected him and so surely these leaders hearing sure. this would think okay St- if Stephen's right and we actually killed the promised Messiah then, we can find grace and mercy. We can be forgiven. Um, Maybe we ought to think about this a little more before we start picking up stones and killing the guy.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, that possibility is what's implied by the way that he tells the story of Moses. I mentioned this last week that he tells the story of Moses in, in two stages. Moses comes, he visits Israel when he kills the Egyptian and according to Stephen, he supposes that that's the beginning of a deliverance. Then they don't want him, and so he leaves. But the deliverance still comes. Moses returns, and he really does deliver them that time. They still they still don't want him even after that. But that's that's the kind of that's the second chance that they're being given. I think that again fits with the current situation that Stephen is in. Jesus has come. As a new, greater Moses, he is now departed. He's glorified and ascended, but he's returned by the Spirit and through Spirit-filled disciples. And now, uh, uh, as in Moses' second coming, as it were, Jesus is coming again to uh, to offer Israel a, a a chance to repent and to listen to the prophet that
5: they that they murdered. Mm. Again, there is this mix of motives attributed to the. Jewish people, at least by analogy. So, in the verse you spoke about, Peter, um, verse twenty-five, his, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by hand, uh, by His hand, but they did not understand. And we noted that it was slightly unusual in some of Peter's earlier speeches. He stressed and spoke about the ignorance of the Jewish people and, and how they didn't realize what they were doing to. Jesus and you know you wouldn't necessarily read the Gospels and get that impression but that is what Peter says and the same thing Stephen mm-hmm. is saying here that yeah there was hard-heartedness but there, there was also an, an ignorance, uh, um, a lack of understanding, a very Isaiah 53 you know we thought he was being smitten by God but um, and it's on the back of that that yeah repentance can affect forgiveness. It is interesting the way
4: that he tells the story of Moses as a periodized narrative. So there are three periods of 40 years, and it maybe invites us to think about the parallels between those. Um, When Moses is first delivered as an infant, he's drawn out of the water, and Miriam sings when he's drawn out. There's a lot of similarity between Moses drawn out of the water and then Israel drawn, drawn out of the water at the Red Sea then there's the going to Midian. Um, At Midian, he's leading a flock to the mountain of God. There's this theophanic event. He also delivers the bride at the waters. Um, And it, it seems that on each level, there is a playing out of a pattern that's played out on a bigger scale in the next stage. So of course, The greater exodus occurs after those initial stages. It's the same with Christ as well. Christ's mission is first of all played out on a smaller scale and then on a larger scale. And also, as regards Israel, um, Christ's death within um, Luke and elsewhere is spoken of in ways that draw our minds back to what Jesus has said in the Olivet Discourse. The fate of Jerusalem and Judea is something that's manifested in his own fate on the cross. He is like the ruined city and people wagging their heads as they go by. And it seems to me that this is preparing Israel. If they receive Christ, then they will be prepared for what would otherwise be a devastating judgment upon them.
2: I want to raise a question about um, Stephen's account of the Moses killing of the Egyptian in verses twenty-three and following, he's approaching age of forty. This is uh, part of the forty pattern that Alistair was pointing to. When he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed his brethren understood that God was granting him deliverance, granting them deliverance, as, as James quoted. So Stephen doesn't describe it as murder, the way that uh, many many preachers do. This Moses becomes a. Uh, one of many examples of scandalous sinners saved by grace. But here, uh, Stephen takes it rather as an, a defensive act. And the way that's that's described, that's a that's a positive thing to take vengeance for the oppressed. Any any thoughts on that? Uh, anybody re- seeing that? It seems to me that yeah. Stephen's, the thrust of Stephen's comment or his account.
3: Yeah, yeah that's a great point. I was leading a um, Bible study, This spring, before the virus crisis came, and we were in um, uh, Exodus two and talking about this, and this was was a ladies' Bible study. About twenty, about twenty of our ladies there, and all of them, I didn't, I didn't give them any hint what I was going to say about it. All I said, "What do you think about Moses doing this?" And all of them, virtually. Uh, and the ones that didn't talk nodded their head, said, well, Moses is trying to do this in the power of his flesh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was, um, it was murder. And um, he, he, that's why he had to flee. And so I took them to Acts seven and also Hebrews 11, where uh, Paul talks about this and reminded them that he was a prince and a civil judge. Um, and it was in Israel who was not ready to be delivered. They're the ones who are rebelling against their deliverer. Now, of course, Moses wasn't ready yet, obviously. Um, and there's a lesson that God was teaching him here. Uh, again, he needs 40 more years of maturation in Midian. But uh, this evangelical myth that somehow Moses was guilty of murder is really uh, uh, defeated here by the inspired interpretation of Stephen. Stephen.
5: And in a sense, Stephen himself has been catapulted into this situation on the back of standing up for some widows who are being neglected in the daily distribution. So there is a a historical backdrop to the whole thing in Stephen's Hmm. life. Interesting. That's a great point. I'm struck as I look over this whole speech of Stephen's – point you were making earlier about um like a hagiographic view of church history and so forth i'm just struck that so little emphasis is put on the patriarch's actions themselves and so much is put on god and on the gentiles mm. and so i mean joseph for instance was a good moral individual and he's spoken of very highly and in a time of sexual temptation where he could, at least in human terms, easily get away with something. Um, He he doesn't, but none of that is brought out. But instead, you know, in Abraham's story, for instance, Abraham was obedient, but in uh, verse four, God is the active agent. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land, which is probably quoting Genesis 15, um, uh, later on in verse nine, in terms of Joseph, but God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions. You know, now in part it was because of Joseph's wisdom in 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 prison and so forth. But God is the active agent. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, um, made him ruler. Uh, in verse twenty one, Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses and brought him up as her own. And then it, it makes the point: Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the egyptians and so sort of egypt is credited there with uh, giving moses his wisdom and it just seems that um there is this sort of deflationary effect to the whole narrative in in stressing the um way in which god god has been the active agent here rather than particularly moral um patriarchs although some of them were and the, the Gentiles have been a, a big driver in this rather than Israel's own faithfulness.
4: See similar ways that a story can be told to accent God's work over any human activity or virtue in Joshua chapter 24, where that story excludes many of the elements that we would include if we were telling the story of the patriarchs. But the point of that telling seems to be to stress that it is God who has acted throughout this history. And the part that Israel plays is as mostly as passive recipient of what God has done towards them as a gift of his grace.
2: Yeah, I wonder if there's uh, some of that same logic in the background when uh, uh, Stephen refers to the golden calf incident. Uh, he's talking about Moses and Moses being rejected. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, verse 39, saying to Aaron, make us gods. So they're making a golden calf, and that's what Exodus uh, indicates. They're making a golden calf as a kind of replacement for Moses. They don't know what happened to Moses. The calf will leave them. Uh, verse 41 talks about the calf being made, but obviously it's also rejection of the Lord. So the re- rejection of Moses and, and and the resistance to the Lord get bound up together. And the key thing about Moses, as you said, is that he's, he's uh, God's agent and God's the the, the a ruler and judge that god has appointed over them he's that one uh that the lord as uh, uh, Stephen repeatedly uses that phrase the one that one that one that was rejected that one uh who did and said this uh is the one who the lord had uh, sent as ruler and judge verse verse 35
5: and that has a very clear syntactic parallel doesn't it with peter's sermon in um chapter 2 36 so Um, You know, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the Mm -hmm. hand of the angel finds a very clear um, parallel. This man God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So there it's becoming more Christological, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, very good point. Right.
3: So do we have at the end here a uh, summing up of the failure of the Israelites basically with a an accusation of idolatry. Um, uh, so Aaron, they said, Aaron, make us gods. And then in verse 41, they were rejoicing in the work of their hands and God turned away from them and gave them to worship the host of heaven. And then when he goes and talks about the tent of witness in the wilderness, uh, in verse 48, he says, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. Uh, and then verse fifty, did not my hand make all these things? So there appears to be this polemic now that the Israelites have constricted and confined God to their their house, their temple. Um, and as we as we noted earlier, God in the story that Stephen tells is constantly appearing in other places rather than just the land. He, his presence is wherever his people are, and he blesses them, and he's present to them. But now the Israelites have confined everything to, uh, confined God to to the, this temple, to the house, and um, Stephen wants to indict them for that, apparently.
4: Um, and it does seem to be an indictment at Colossus. Uh- critical juncture in the narrative because in the chapter that follows they're scattered they Mm -hmm. go to samaria then there's the movement to the um ethiopian eunuch the salvation of saul and then saul going to the gentiles after peter has gone to cornelius's house that movement out occurs after this and it seems that this maybe sums up all of what has preceded to this point, which has been that focus mission upon Jerusalem, especially, and then Israel more generally,
3: and this is why um, their temple is like a pagan temple now. In Acts seventeen, I think it's uh, with Paul. Paul Paul talks about how. God does not dwell in temple made temples made with hands to the Athenians, mm. uh, very Fun. similar kind of critique.
2: Mm-hmm. We, we talked in the first uh, episode on Acts seven about the uh, the way that Luke skips details or conflates details. I wonder what um, if you had any thoughts on the quick movement from the golden calf, verse forty one. They're delivered up to the worshiping and serving the host of heaven, verse forty two. Uh, the tabernacle of Molech. And the star of the god uh, Rampha in verse forty three, and the threat of exile beyond Babylon. That's within a within a few verses. We can just traverse the entire entire history of Israel from the wilderness from Sinai uh, to exile in Babylon. It goes back and talks about Joshua and the establishment of the sanctuary in the land, uh, alluding back to the promises to Abraham at the beginning of the chapter. But uh, any thoughts about those? uh, most of that is quotation from different prophetic passages, but any thoughts about what what's being got at there uh, and and why he's squeezing those what appear to be idolatries of different ages into into just one image of idolatry, one one situation it seems.
4: In some ways it makes the experience of the wilderness being outside of the land, waiting to be given the possession of the land, paradigmatic for Israel's history. Um, It's not their settled possession in the land and the establishment of the temple and all these sorts of things that provide the way that you most clearly see the truth at the heart of Israel's history. Rather, it's the promise that's held out to them of God's presence in their beds, the wandering through the wilderness um, and then being brought into the land. And so they never actually possess it as a secure possession that is has left God's hand, as it were, and now they can grasp hold of it and find security in it. Um, there's always that sense of they've never fully possessed this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that's granted them by God, but as a result, it can be taken away. God's not God is not contained within buildings. Um, and Israel's possession in the land has never been an absolutely secure thing. It's always been a grant given to them by pure divine grace.
5: I think something else Stephen might be wanting to do is to set these two tents side by side. So to say in verse 44, your fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. That was what they were given. But in verse 43, they preferred the tent of um, Moloch instead. And so there's that sort of juxtaposition going Mm -hmm. on there.
2: I was going to say that that sets up for what Jeff was saying that uh, Stephen's charge is that they're treating the temple as a pagan temple, but Alistair, your point is that that's been that's been their history in a sense. That's their that's the norm of Israel's history, is to have uh, alternative shrines and idols and uh, to be worshiping other gods. Um, just a theological, even a systematic theological
3: comment here in verse fifty-one where Stephen says that you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Just a very simple point here. Um, The Holy Spirit uh, wasn't uh, first experienced in Acts chapter 2. This is one of those good proof texts for that when people um, make the suggestion that somehow the Holy Spirit really finally started acting or came into human history or into human hearts or whatever in Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit's been around for a while. Uh, something extra uh, is given in Acts 2, but not not the Holy Spirit um, for the first time.
2: Mm. Yeah. And that verse is also the turn. Uh, Stephen turns from the, uh, his account of Israel's history. He begins addressing the uh, Jewish leaders directly. And he places them in the history he's been recounting, which is a history of resistance to uh, the spirit that takes the form of resistance to the leaders and judges and prophets that the Lord sends and that the spirit inspires. Uh, now they're 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 um, if we go back to the beginning of our discussion, the previous episode, uh, they're not Abrahamic because they're not departing from their fathers' ways. Uh, they're continuing in the ways that their fathers. Uh, the, the rebellious ways of their fathers, what they need to do is uh, be like Abraham and leave their uh, father's customs behind and uh, become attached to Jesus and the true king and judge that the Lord has uh, set over them.
4: The description of the Son of Man um, standing at the right hand of God, um, that's been already one of the things that was part of the charge against Jesus or his response to the charge, that you will see the Son of Man um, in that position. And that would be proved, I believe, in AD 70 with the judgment upon Jerusalem. And his declaration here is proof of the ascension of Christ, that Christ has ascended to God's right hand. And this is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, um, verses 13 to 14. And along with that, it's a validation of the charge that was laid against Jesus as his blasphemous claim for which he was crucified was this claim that he would be at God's right hand and
3: let's notice too that Stephen has now become uh, like the messengers that he has recited to the Jewish leaders he is going to be thrust out of the city uh, but God's presence is with him because he sees the God of glory Mm. appearing to him Outside the city, just like the other messengers, um, and so what what he has said about them is now coming true for him. Uh, he's going to be rejected, uh, just like um, just like Joseph, just like Moses, um, and the others.
5: The um, text of verse fifty seven: the reaction when they cry cry out with a loud voice um, and stop their ears seems to be seems to have a bigger significance than that. It seems to signify that there is beginning a, a deliberate stopping of, of um, the, the Jews' ears to the um, apostolic witness within Jerusalem. It seems to symbolize um, uh, the, the beginning of, a, a, of an awful rejection.
4: Could we see a sort of perverse symmetry to the end of this chapter where they have um, – cast – um, Stephen out of the city of Jerusalem and then they lay down their garments and there's been this focus upon Jerusalem ever since the triumphal entry. They've laid down the garments as Christ rode into the city and all these events taking place in the run-up to the crucifixion and then Pentecost and now to this point and at this point there's the casting out of the city and it's a sort of perverse um, inversion of the whole triumphal entry. Mm.
3: Mm. Well is it possible also that they're taking, they're taking off their robes of authority and actually giving them to uh, Saul? Saul becomes then one of the major leaders here in this um, in this fight and this pursuit of the church so that Saul's going to get a whole lot of authority here. Um, and also it's, I, I failed to look at this and I, I should have this somewhere in my notes. Um, this young man, this man, Saul, um, is he a member of the Sanhedrin? Is he part of the council? Is, what's he doing? Um, is, is, or is it just a coat check, you know, uh, for them? It seems like um, Saul has some significance here other than just um, a young man who's standing there and happens to hold the garments from the leaders who are uh, stoning Stephen.
2: Yeah, uh, Alistair's comment is interesting. I think I think there would be um, maybe a stage in between. You have the triumphal entry that's reversed with Jesus. He's expelled from the city and suffers outside the gates. And now you have um, again uh, Stephen sharing in that same uh, exclusion and rejection. And uh, uh, I think we said this at the beginning of our discussion of, of Acts six, but uh, St- Stephen Stephanus crown. Uh, his name means crown and he's receiving the crown of the martyr, the crown of triumph, although uh, empirically it looks like he's the he's the uh, he's not the victor here. He is in fact the victor. but uh, there's a yeah kind of an an interesting play with the triumphal entry, as uh, Alistair said. It's a triumphal expulsion, I guess.
4: The timing of this, um, if we go to Galatians the way that Paul describes um, his visits to Jerusalem. It would seem this happens very early on, um, maybe around AD 30. Uh, This Paul's conversion is something that we would presume comes uh, several years later, but in the actual chronology that he gives, connecting it with the death of Herod, connecting it with the details of chapter 12, and then the other visit in chapter 9, it would place things... Considerably earlier. And for that reason, I think we can just have a sense of the density of the events in this period of time. Mm-hmm. How many people were being converted in Jerusalem in a short span of time, and how much of a threat people like Stephen would have been. Um, I mean, this movement has risen up. The leaders of the people do not know where it's going to go, they see it gathering pace at a dramatic speed. And Stephen is a huge threat.
5: Yeah. And yet, as we've said, it, it will backfire just as some of the other actions have backfired and it will um, result in the spread of the gospel. We had noticed when we um, looked, I think, at chapter three, there were various contact points with um, Ezekiel's final vision. And there was that mention of um, the ankles. And we wondered if there would be later references to um sort of you know body parts higher up the leg and we have Stephen falling to his knees here at the end of chapter seven and um I haven't looked forward so I don't know if there are more coming later in the book but I wonder if there is that um uh that expansion and rising of the spirit from Jerusalem outwards the way that
4: his death is described it draws our mind back very clearly to the death of Christ. The um, Lord Jesus received my spirit into my into your hands. I commit my spirit. Um, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Um, and then the description of his death is very surprising. It's an incredibly violent death. He's being stoned and yet he falls asleep. It is not the way that we would probably think of describing it. But as the first martyr, he's someone who has entered into his rest at this point, even though he might have suffered this most brutal and cruel and violent of deaths.
5: Ultimately, it sends him into rest. I can't help but find Stephen just a hugely impressive and Christ-like individual as I read through this, um, or these two chapters, really. He was held in high esteem among those who knew him best. He took up the cause of these widows, these women who were mistreated. He was disliked by the religious orthodoxy. um, And so he acted like Jesus, and and they treated him like Jesus. They trumped up these witnesses and and killed him outside the city. And I just find this as a huge compliment and testimony to Stephen's um, godliness. And I'm also struck by his sermon and his use of the Old Testament. I, I just find it as I've looked at it and then gone closely back to the Old Testament, I find it an absolutely brilliant use and based on a deep reading of scripture. And for me, it highlights the importance of kind of in, in, even in times of chaos, of soaking ourselves in the scriptures. I mean, I, I can't prove this, but I don't imagine that Stephen just came up with this on the hoof and and made all these deep scriptural connections um on, on the hoof or that the holy spirit miraculously gave them to him i i would believe rather that the holy spirit used a mind and life that had deeply contemplated the story of scripture and then sort of brought it together when stephen needed to then deliver that that sermon
2: yeah that's that's an excellent point james and i, I think it uh it just uh, uh, highlights one dimension of what uh, what we can take from this passage. Uh, as as we said at the beginning uh, of this episode, I think what we have uh, in early cha- in the early chapters of Acts is an escalating escalating opposition to the church, escalating hostility. Um, but the church, uh, the early disciples, don't flinch from that. Stephen doesn't doesn't really even mount a defense. He turns on. Uh, he turns offensive and he, he's the one who becomes the prosecutor and brings charges against the, the Jewish leaders rather than simply defending himself. And at each stage, what, what the apostles are doing is, and, and uh, others like Stephen, uh, whatever opportunity is given to them becomes an opportunity for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, uh, for proclaiming the, the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus. Uh, whether it's uh, a trial whether it's a beating whether it's expulsion from the city and stoning uh, and we see in the aftermath as we'll look at in future in future episodes uh, the death of Stephen really is the impetus for the scattering of the church they're scattering for safety but when they scatter they take the gospel with them and they begin to go outside of Jerusalem to other areas our everything that's happened it, uh, whatever persecution or hostility they meet spirit is uh, orchestrating that to become another opportunity for witness and another
4: another uh, stage in the spread of the gospel. And Christ in the Olivet Discourse had explicitly promised this. But before all this, they will lay hand, their hands on you and persecute you, delivering, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And the attention given to trials and defences in the book of Acts, I think, arises from that statement. Christ has promised to give his spirit and his wisdom at those moments. And that witness of the apostles, the Acts, are often seen primarily in those moments of witness where they do not humanly have the power and resources to face great opponents, but yet the Lord has given them irresistible wisdom. Thank you again for enjoying this
0: episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitut.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name.